All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the ways in which already in our gathering this morning, you have met with us by your Spirit. You have met us in our singing. You have met us in our confession. You have assured us that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we bear the weight of guilt no more. You have met us in our praying. And now, oh God, we ask that you would meet us in your word and at the table. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us. We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series for the last couple months in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we kind of had a mini-series within our Corinthians series called God and Sexuality. We capped that off last week. And now this morning, we're going to continue on, and we're going to be finishing up uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Not this morning, <laughs> but over the next several months. But in the section that we're entering into today, it begins at chapter 11, and it goes all the way through chapter 14. And Paul talks to the church in Corinth about worship. Kind of the the refrain in this chapter or in these chapters is when you gather. Now, when they were gathering, things were a bit of a mess. And as we've seen over the last few months, the church in Corinth was a messed up church. And uh, these were Christians gone wild. There was a lot of, you know, crazy stuff happening. Even in our reading this morning, we heard that uh, some people at the Lord's Supper were going hungry. Other people were getting drunk. And even if you're not a Christian, you know that it's probably not a good idea to get drunk at the Lord's Supper. And yet here they were at the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes in these chapters to address them and some of the errors, some of the problems that are surfacing in the church. And so this week and next week, we're going to see what he says to them about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be talking this week and next week about communion, about this very central practice in the life of the church. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you know, you might think that what we do you know, quite often around here seems a little bit strange. We dismiss people in rows, they come forward, and then we serve them a little uh, piece of cracker and a little thimble of juice. And you think, that is an odd, strange ritual. I remember inviting some of my friends um, to come to our church a while back. It was their second time ever being in church. And my friend after church, he thanked me. He said, I thanked you that, uh, thank you, that, that you, didn't, um, you gave me an out that I didn't have to participate in that weird thing you guys were doing. And uh, so you might feel that way. But you know, even if you've grown up in church, you might be a little bit put off or maybe confused at times by this practice. I remember when I was a young Christian, brand new, small kid, growing up in church, you know, seven, eight, 10 years old. I remember I used to dread the communion service. Because it meant I would have to eat that stale bread, I'd get that, you know, not very nice tasting juice, and then, of course, the service would drag out, it would always be longer, and that pushed lunch back further, and I thought, oh, you know, and then I wasn't always the greatest kid, and the pastor would always threaten us about eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you know, and he'd put the fear of God in us, you know, and so I never looked forward to this practice, and maybe you can relate with me. So what's up with the Lord's Supper? 
Why is it such a big deal? And couldn't we do church without it? I mean, think about it. If you're new to Christianity, you know, a lot of stuff that we do in church is familiar to other things you do. Uh, We have a teaching each week, and that might be something like a TED Talk. Uh, We sing, and sometimes we lift our hands, but that's like going to a concert. But this practice where we walk forward and we receive a little piece of bread and a thimble of juice, this is, is odd. It's strange. And what's the, what's the point of it? Couldn't we just do church without it? Well, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to the rest of the New Testament, no, we can't. This practice was given to us by Jesus, and he commands us to practice it. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Now stop there. He says, I received this practice from the Lord. And this practice that I received from Jesus, I gave to you. And Jesus, of course, after breaking the bread and sharing the cup, he commanded his church. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And when you open up the New Testament, what you discover is that the church was obedient to this ordinance. And they met regularly, weekly, actually, to share together in the meal that Jesus gave. Acts chapter 2 describes it this way. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And that little phrase, the breaking of bread, is a technical reference to communion. Acts chapter 20 describes a worship service in the early church. Uh, The church gathers, it says, on the first day of the week, they came together and it says, why did they come together? To break bread. Again, a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's interesting, later on in that service, uh, you know, they break bread and they probably met on Saturday evenings because the first day of the week began for Jews at sundown on, you know, the previous day and then it, it ended at sundown on that day. Does that make sense? It sounded confusing even coming out of my mouth. Just checking, making sure you're paying attention. So Sunday for them began on Saturday night and it ended on Sunday night. And so oftentimes they would gather in homes in the evening on Saturday night. Well, in this case, they gathered together and it says, Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And so that is biblical precedent for very long sermons. But of course, you need to read on because there was a guy who was listening to the sermon and he fell asleep and actually fell out of the window and died. But Paul came and, you know, raised him from the dead and it was all good. (laughs) But it says that they gathered together. Why? To break bread. And, you know, as the church began to spread throughout the Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world, and it began to go on into the very next century, the Christians continued to practice regularly gathering together on the first day of the week for the Lord's Supper to break bread and to spend time in the Word and in mutual encouragement. We get a glimpse of what the early church gatherings were like. In fact, the, the earliest glimpse that we get kind of as the church began to grow outside of the Bible comes to us from the writings of a man named Justin Martyr in AD 150. So this gives us a little window into church in the second century. Do you want to hear what it says? On the day named after the sun, says Justin, all who live in, in the city or countryside assemble. And then he draws this, this picture of the Christian uh, church. He says, the service opened with someone reading the writings from the apostles and the prophets for, quote, as long as time permitted. And when the reading was finished, the presider addressed the people in a sermon, exhorting them to imitate the splendid things they had just heard. 
And following the service of the word, the people offered intercessory prayers, and they prayed for ourselves and for him who had just been baptized, and for all people everywhere. And then, he says, they continued on by celebrating the Lord's Supper. The presider took the gifts and offered prayer, glorifying the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uttering a lengthy thanksgiving prayer because the Father had judged them worthy to receive these gifts. And the people assented with an amen, and the deacons distributed the gifts. And so in the New Testament church, they gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread, to share in the Lord's Supper, and to share in God's Word, and to pray. As the church began to grow in the second, third, and fourth century, they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread, to share in the Lord's Supper, uh, to hear God's Word, and to pray. And actually, over the next several hundred years, as the church began to grow and develop and spread throughout the the, the empire, and throughout the, the then known world, Christians would gather on the first day of the week, to break bread, to share in the Lord's Supper, and to pray, and to to spend time in God's Word. It was a service of both Word as well as table. But why? Why is it that Christians not only gather together to hear the Word, but also share in this practice? I mean, what is so central about this practice? And, And why keep doing it every single week when you gather together? I mean, won't it get old, want it lose, it's kind of special. I mean, why did they do it like this? Why did they do this? And, and I want us to reflect on that question this morning. And I want you to see this morning the significance of this practice. And my hope is, is that by framing together the purpose and the meaning of the Lord's Supper and what happens when we share in it, my hope is that it will enrich, it will enliven and it will strengthen and, and, and you will find nourishment afresh in your own participation in this practice when we come to it week by week. So let's, uh, let's, let's, let's look together at the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm, I'm going to, next week, I'll dive a little bit more kind of into the details of this passage we're looking at, chapter 11, kind of we'll talk a little bit more about the problems that was happening in the church in Corinth. But suffice it to say that the church in Corinth was having problems around the Lord's Supper. Look what Paul says in chapter 11, verse 17. He says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In chapter 11, verse 2, he said, now I commend you. Because you hold to the traditions that I gave you, probably the traditions regarding empowering women in the local gathering to pray and preach in, or to pray and to prophesy in the local assembly. But here he says, I have no such commendation for you. Why? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He says, look, your church gatherings are doing more harm than good. And this was not the first nor the last time that church gatherings could do more harm in people's lives than good because they had distorted some things about the Lord's Supper. But Paul writes then to correct them and to give them a proper vision of the Lord's Supper. So what I want to do is I want to kind of dip into what Paul says about a proper observance of the Lord's Supper. And I want us to draw out four or five things that are happening, four or five things that we are invited to do when we share in this practice week by week. And the first is this. When we share in the Lord's Supper, number one, you and I are invited to look back. We are invited, number one, to look back. Look what he says in chapter 11, verse 23 again. He says, For I received from the Lord 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, what was the night that Jesus was betrayed? It was Passover. And on that night, Jesus gathered together with his disciples to do with them what they had done with their families year after year after year, and what every family in Jerusalem and in Judea and throughout the then-known world was doing year after year, and what they had literally been doing year after year for hundreds of years. And that was to share together in the Passover meal. Now, what was the Passover all about? Well, the Passover was an annual feast where they would commemorate and they would celebrate God's liberation of his people out of the nation of Egypt. God acts by a strong arm and he lifts his people out of Egypt and he defeats Pharaoh. And so every year, the children of Israel would gather around the table. And for them, it was like their 4th of July. This was their great liberation, their great freedom celebration, where God acted to liberate his people, and they would gather together, and they would celebrate this great event. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples on Passover to celebrate the Exodus. But while he is celebrating the meal, he does something crazy, totally out of the box and mind-boggling for everyone at that table. You see, there was a a fairly standard order that the Jews would follow when they would walk through the Passover meal, the Seder. And it would begin with symbols that pointed to the events of the Exodus. And one of the first symbols you encounter in the Passover meal is the unleavened bread. This, by the way, is not unleavened bread. You just have to use your imaginations. Are you there? Can you imagine... It's not gluten-free either. (laughs) But the leader would hold up the bread at the Passover meal, and he would say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And they would continue in the meal. And at the final kind of part of the meal, they would raise up a final glass. It would be the cup of redemption. And it is in these two moments in the meal, at the beginning with the bread and at the end with the cup, that Jesus takes these two symbols and he redefines them, not around the Exodus, but around himself. He says, this bread is not the bread of affliction that took you out of Egypt. Instead, he says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then he says, and this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus says, do this. And do you see what he's doing? He is redefining the story of the Exodus around himself as if to say, I am about tonight as I go out of the upper room and into the garden and plunge myself into the darkness of Golgotha. There I will bring about a true and a better exodus. I will defeat a greater Pharaoh, the very powers of sin and death and darkness. And I will liberate you from a greater slavery. And I will bring you into a freedom of the children of God. And this is what I have come to do. So Jesus takes these elements and he redefines them around himself. 
But in the Old Testament, in the story of the Exodus, how was it that Israel's liberation, how was it that their redemption was brought about? It was through God's mighty hand of judgment, where he poured out his wrath and judgment upon Egypt in work after work after work of terrible plagues and darkness, until ultimately the final and the last plague is taking the life of the firstborn son. But this redemption, this exodus is going to be brought about not by God pouring out darkness upon the land. It's not going to be about by God taking the life of of the firstborn of the people in Rome. Rather, it's going to come about by God himself in Jesus plunging himself into the darkness, plunging himself into God-forsakenness, plunging himself and giving his own firstborn son for the life of the world. And look at what he says. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And notice how he phrases this, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. That word betrayed, it's interesting. In the original language, it's the same verb that's used previous when Paul says, that which I received, I also handed on to you. That word handed on is the same verb here. And it could also be translated on the night that Jesus was handed on over. And I don't think what Paul is referencing here is Judas betraying Jesus. I think what he's referencing here is the reality that in the cross of Christ, God himself was at work giving his own self in the person of his son to redeem and rescue the world. You know, it seems like in all of the great stories of the world, redemption, healing, salvation is brought about by somebody giving their life away. I mean, how was it that Harry Potter defeated the Death Eaters? It was through a great act of self-sacrifice and self-giving. How was it that Iron Man defeated the universe, you know, and all the enemies of the universe? It was by giving his own life away. Spoiler alert. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) But look, you should have seen it already if it was that important to you. Of course, Gandalf plunges himself into the great abyss to defeat the Bullrog in an effort to save his friends. And God in Jesus Christ has given his very self in our place and for our sakes, for our redemptions. By his stripes, you have been healed. All we like sheep have gone away. We have turned every one to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God in Christ was bearing our own guilt and sin and shame and bringing it to an end in Jesus Christ. And when we come to this table week after week, we are invited to come and to look back and to remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But don't misunderstand what he says when he says, do this in remembrance of me. That word remember, I don't think he's simply calling us to exercise an intellectual capacity. You know, remember, you know, some of you forgot last week that Jesus gave himself for you. And so you need to be reminded, did you forget? That's not the kind of remembering he's talking about here. The word could actually be translated actualize in your present experience the events of the past. Or we could put it like this, or I could illustrate it like this. 
one of my goals as a father, and it's the goal of every good father, right, is to teach your children how to surf. <laughs> and I've been at this for a few years now with my daughters, and the biggest transition in surfing is the movement from standing, kind of catching the whitewash and then standing up on the whitewash to going out in the outer break and catching a wave before it breaks and standing up and dropping down in. That transition from whitewash to the open face of a wave seems like an enormous goal for most people. And it's what I've been working on with my daughters. And I always say, you can't be too far forward on your board and you can't be too far back. And remember, you can't paddle too early for the wave and you can't paddle too late. And remember, when you drop in, you've got to hop up really quickly so that you don't go down too far and pearl, and then you're all over it. And oftentimes, I'll see the girls paddle into a wave, you know, and then they'll just pearl. Audrey's been doing this because she's been going with me more often, paddling on the outside. And, and she'll paddle back out. I'll say, Audrey, remember what I said. Remember, remember, not too quickly, not too slowly. Remember, get up right when you drop in. You know, not, don't paddle in too early. Don't paddle in too late. Remember, remember. And she says, Dad, I know, I know. And what's the problem? Her problem is not that she's intellectually forgot. Her problem is, is that in the terror of the moment of dropping down the face of a wave, you don't remember, you can't see anything except for what's around you. Amen. And isn't this true in our own lives? Your own anxieties, your fears, your insecurities, they are overwhelming to you. And so we need to come to this practice again and again and again for God to affirm to you that your identity, your security, your belonging is grounded in God's sacrificial love for you in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. And so we come to this practice to look back to remember, to actualize in our present experience the radical love of God in the event of Jesus Christ in the past. But secondly, we not only are invited to look back, but second, in this practice, you and I, as we come forward, we are invited to look around. Now, I grew up in a tradition where I was always encouraged, you know, when I came to church and when I was gonna uh, practice the Lord's Supper, the pastor would say something like, you know, I just want everything else in the room to fade away right now. And right now, in this moment, it is just you and Jesus. And I want you just to personally, an individual, just you and Jesus right now. But you know, for Paul, the Lord's Supper is not simply about you and Jesus. The Lord's Supper is about you and the whole community of Jesus. Listen to how he puts it in chapter 10, verse 16. He says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? But because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This as we're going to look at next week, is exactly where the Corinthians were missing it. They practiced the Lord's Supper in such a way that it reinforced the divisions in the church rather than put them down and reassert the unity of the church. And in this practice, what we see is this, 
that though in this room you are surrounded by people who are so different than you. There are differences all over this room, isn't there? There are political differences. Some of you are on the left and some of you are on the right. And there are theological differences. You know, uh, some of you are young earth creationists, some are old earth creationists. He Ross, there are some theistic evolution or theistic whatever the evolution is. There, there are so many different kind of positions when it comes to different theological ideas. And of course, we have uh, relational differences. We have cultural differences. We have differences that are related to our age and the era we grew up in. And sometimes we can't understand each other. There are differences all around you every day. And sometimes those differences surface and they create problems. I remember listening to a pastor or a therapist, or a pastor was interviewing a therapist. And uh, he asked the therapist, like, like, if you could kind of boil down the problems that, that, that you see in marriages, what, what would you say? He said, if I could boil it down to one word, it would be the word difference. He says, in most healthy marriages, he says, you, you kind of agree about 60 to 70% of the time, but you disagree about 30 to 40% of the time. But then in more difficult and trying marriages, you disagree about 60% of the time and you agree about 40% of the time. Anybody here in the house, a 60%er? It's the difference that creates division. It creates problems. But here at the table, we are reminded, we, we are reminded to look around and see that what unites us is so much bigger and better and more beautiful than what divides us. And what unites us together is the extravagant love of God that became flesh and blood in Jesus Christ and gave himself utterly and passionately for your redemption and the redemption of the people around you. And listen, there are not just differences in this room. There are difficult people in this room. Could you just point to somebody right now? You know, as a, as a pastor, sometimes I, I have this experience of serving the Lord's Supper, and I can, I, I've had this experience where there's somebody in the church who has been difficult for me, and they come forward to receive, not in this church, in other churches I've been at. <laughs> this church, you guys are all, we're all good. We are good. But I, I have found, you know, people I've had a hard time with, when I say the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. There has been many times where I've just been emotionally moved. And I just think, who am I to be so self-righteous and arrogant and critical of them? This is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. I remember listening to a, a lecture or a sermon from old pastor John Stott, one of the great pastors of the 20th century. And the title of the le lecture was Lessons of an Octogenarian. An octogenarian is somebody in their 80s. And so he gave this kind of lesson. But one of his lessons was how to deal with EGRs. Do you know what EGRs are? These are people for whom extra grace is required. You know, most of us, all of us require grace, but there are some people, some of you require a little extra. <laughs> But he said, he'll have people, and he says, they come up to me afterwards, and, you know, they shake my hand. He was pastor of a very large church in London. 
And he said he would have this, this voice in his head as, as people who might be difficult for him would come forward to either receive the Lord's Supper or, or they would um, shake his hand and he would, he would just have this refrain, this is a brother or sister who is precious in the eyes of God. Friends, you are surrounded by people who are precious in the eyes of God. And when we get up and you see people get up and they walk forward, I mean, part of the benefit of actually coming forward to receive the Lord's Supper is we are forced to look at each other and interact with each other and kind of get out of each other's way and things like this. But despite all of that, we are brought together in the one body of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we who are many are one body and we all partake of the same bread. And so this practice not only is an invitation to look back to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, it is an invitation for us to look around and see what Christ has done, not just for you in your own personal, individual, religious life, but what God has done for the people around you who are precious in God's eyes. Thirdly, this practice is an invitation to look ahead. It's an invitation to look ahead. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. As often as you eat and drink, you look ahead with longing and expectation until the day that the Lord comes. Now, why is it that this practice in particular causes us to look ahead? Well, maybe it's because when God gives us a vision, he gives us a peek into the future, one of the, the ways in which the future kingdom of God is described is, get this, it's described as a great feast, Isaiah 25, verse 6, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, write it down. It says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their eyes and he will remove the people's disgrace from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. He said the day of the Lord, this future day is described as a banquet. I was reading this last week about the um, kind of a, a recent study that was put out by the University of Oxford on the subject of human happiness. And there's been a lot of studies, and, and really in the last couple uh, decades, there's been a ton of research done on what is it is that contributes to human well-being and human happiness. And one of the findings of this particular study from the University of Oxford is that human beings are at their happiest when they are around a table eating food with family and friends. Can I get a witness? Anybody else like to gather around a table and eat with family and friends? Like that just makes you feel full and alive. Like that is life. Well, this practice gives us a glimpse into the day when we will not just celebrate in the kingdom of God around a great banquet eating the best food you have ever tasted. You will be doing so in the very presence of God. 
Jesus said to the disciples, he said on the last night, he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, for I will not eat it again until the day in the future when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Anybody here like to go to Costco and get free samples? <laughs> you get that little bite of lasagna, and it's just a little taste of what, you know, the whole 85 pounds of that stuff is going to be like when you buy it. And friends, when we come forward together and we're singing and we're reminded of the Lord's love for us and of this community we're a part of and we celebrate this practice, it is just a sample of the feast ahead in the kingdom of God. And so this is an invitation to look back. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to look around. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to look ahead. And then finally, the Lord's Supper is an invitation to look within. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. We're going to get a little bit more in depth in this next week, but just look at what he says. He says, For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. So then he says this, And so let a person examine themselves and then partake. Every week when we come to the Lord's table, it's an opportunity, it's an invitation to do self-examination, to look inside and to see how have, I been how have I been treating the body of Christ, the reality of God's love for me in Jesus? How have I been treating the family of God? This practice becomes a regular opportunity for us to ask a, this question afresh again, where am I finding my nourishment? You know, have you heard the phrase, you know, that guy needs to have his ego fed all the time? And what are we saying when we talk about somebody's ego needing to be fed? We're saying the very thing that keeps them going, it's what makes them feel alive, is when people are giving them praise because that's kind of their deepest insatiable need. I need you to keep affirming me and praising me. It's what feeds me. It's what nourishes me. And of course, some of you perhaps might need to have your ego fed, but there are different needs in our life that we operate out of. For some of you, the thing that you're fed by is your need to be needed. It's when other people need you that you feel like you're okay in life. Some of you, you need to be perfect. And you feel okay in life when you're being fed kind of by your own perfectionism and life is going well, but when it's not, you feel crushed. Some of us need to be successful, and we need to be viewed as a success. We need people to think we're impressive. Some of us are fed by our need to be unique and different, and so we're always walking around, we're a unique victim. Nobody has ever had it like we do. We need people to keep saying that because that's what feeds us. That's what keeps us going. Some of us need to be secure and safe, and so we're always looking for things to make us feel secure and safe. Some of us need to be in control and in charge. Some of us always need to just be having fun all the time and be distracted and to be looking for new excitements. What is it that nourishes you? And at the table, we are reminded that below all of the, 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 the appetites of the heart lies a deeper hunger, and it's a hunger for love that can only be found in God. And this love comes to us freely and abundantly in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And so when we come to this table, we, we examine ourselves. Where am I finding my nourishment? How am I treating the people around me? Where am I finding my hope for the future? What am I looking for? This table reminds us again and again to bring into the present, our own present reality, our own present experience, the good work that God has done on our behalf. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And when we come and eat this bread and we drink this cup, we find nourishment in God's self-giving, sacrificial, extravagant love for us. So this is an invitation to look back to the cross. It's an invitation to look around at the community. It's an invitation to look ahead to the coming feast in the kingdom of God. And this practice is an invitation to examine ourselves and to look in. But there's one more thing I want to say about this practice. And this will take us to actually sharing together in the Lord's Supper, and it's this. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, and we're really going to kind of dive into the the cultural practices surrounding meals and whatnot next week. But in the Greco-Roman world, there are basically two types of meals. And these two types of meals still exist, like that you would share with other people. The first was kind of like a picnic or a potluck. And this is where you brought your own food, but you shared your food in a common space with other people. So there was kind of the picnic potluck. Tonight, we're having a picnic potluck type thing. So don't forget to bring your food tonight. But the second kind of meal was a meal that was thrown by a host. And at this gathering, you wouldn't bring anything. You would only come to receive. And you know, in our text, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he's using this phrase, the Lord's banquet, to say that this is a banquet that Jesus himself is throwing and he himself is the host. Here is a way you can view gathering together on corporate, for corporate worship on Sundays. We are coming together to join together in a feast that is being thrown by Jesus. Jesus is present among us when we gather. Jesus is present to us when we receive the bread and we receive the cup. Jesus is there with us. He is the host of this meal. This is not a moment where we come and we try to prove ourselves to God and we try to make ourselves worthy to receive, you know, God's mercy and grace in our lives. No, God in Jesus says to us, all are welcome to come to me. You are welcome at this table. I am the host, says Jesus. Come to me. And it is a profound and a beautiful and a mysterious thought that the very presence of the living Christ is here with us this morning. And when we come to this this practice, we don't come here alone, but we come here where Jesus himself is present to us. The good news of Jesus coming to us both in his preached word that his spirit applies by his spirit, but also in these tangible elements of the bread and the cup reminding us that this word is not just spoken, but it became flesh to dwell among us. God in Christ became tangible and fleshly and killable for your healing and your redemption. And that is very, very good news, isn't it? But let's pray together as we... Come to this table. 
Lord Jesus, we come to you in confidence this morning that we gather in your midst and that you are present among us. And we are not gathered here because we have brought ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we have climbed a ladder of morality and religiosity to get to you. We are here, Lord Jesus, because you, by your grace, have invited us to our, yourself. And you have given yourself freely and unreservedly to atone for our sins. And you offer us this free gift of life and salvation and love. And I ask that even as we come to you now and we share in the bread and in the cup, that your spirit would affirm to us that we belong to you, that you would actualize in our own experience the great event of the past, that you would fill us with hope for the future kingdom of God, and that you would renew our love and our commitment to each other. And we ask that you would do this by your spirit and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.